0: So my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if you're new with us, we are going through the book of Luke, and we're going through a sermon series through the whole book of Luke. We might take a break here and there, but we're going through the whole thing, so it's going to take us a while. Today, we're going to be in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to talk about and read about John the Baptist. All right, and really, one thing I want to start off with is that We need to see the significance of John the Baptist's ministry. Um, His ministry and even the sermon that we read from him today is going to mark a, a huge shift in the biblical narrative because we're going to see a transition really from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. John is kind of like a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he's introducing Christ. He's preparing the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah. And we see that happen in, in one single story in our text today. So let's go ahead and read, uh, starting with verse 1. The first three verses or so is really kind of historical background. Remember, Luke is a historian. So when he's put together this account of the life of Jesus, he, he's approaching it as a historian. So Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over uh, Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Aeteria, and Traconitus, or Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. None of those words mean much to most of us. Um, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So this is kind of like the background. So really... What that should mean for us, if you're, if you're a historian, you love history, you dig in and you figure out, when did these people live? This is kind of like a time and date stamp for what's about to take place with John the Baptist. Um, but during this time, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So that's, that's what's happening. That's what we're going to read about today. He's preaching and he's baptizing. This John the Baptist. So who is John the Baptist? Well, his name is John and he baptized people. Right? Okay, well, that's the first point. <laughs> no. Most scholars believe that he was about 30 years old at this point um, because of the dating of these different leaders in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. So um, Jesus also, as you know from, I think it's chapter 1 in Luke, uh, was a cousin of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth, was pregnant with John while Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And so they're about the same age. We also know that Jesus, when he started his public ministry, was right around 30 years old. So John was a Jewish man, of course, from the tribe of Levi. So he was a Levite. Uh, there's twelve tribes of Israel, he was from the tribe of Levi, and this comes in uh, this becomes really important later on in our story because we we have to remember that in the Old Testament the Levites were responsible for preparing and making sacrifices for the people of Israel and so more more to come on that um, the last prophet uh, before John comes comes with the Word of God in this story. The last prophet and prophecy was, was in Malachi, which was over 400 years prior to this event. So Malachi was, uh, Malachi was a prophet, and even in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we see a prophecy about John the Baptist. So I'm just going to read it real quick. Malachi 3.1 says, "'Behold, I send my messenger.'" And he will prepare a way before me. So Malachi prophesies about John the Baptist. There's no prophecies that come through any prophets. Prophecy is just the word of God spoken through a human. We see none of that for over 400 years. It's like the intertestamental period before, uh, or between the Old and the New Testament. And then John shows up not only to fulfill one of the last prophecies, but also to continue prophesying. And so it's a pretty huge deal when people hear that somebody has a word from God now, and that's John. Um, people like to, to think about what John wore. If you've heard of John the Baptist, you probably know he, people thought he was a little crazy. Um, he wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He ate uh, locusts and wild honey. Those details are in the Bible. <laughs> um, but it, that's sort of the, the garb for a prophet. So it wasn't just totally random. Like prophets wore this kind of thing. They didn't want the focus to be on themselves. And uh, so, yeah, that was John. Now, the Jewish culture of the time. I think this is going to be helpful as we go through Luke, but specifically for today as well. I want you to get some of the background before we jump back into the text. So the Jews had been overtaken by Roman rule at this point. In 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey had captured Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was not technically in exile. You know, we just had the series in Daniel about being in exile, being taken away from God's place and captured by a different government and rulership. They weren't in exile in the sense that they were outside of their homeland, but they were under the rulership of the Romans. So it was sort of like exile. Now, the Jews did have some power and oversight in government within their religious communities so the Roman rulers allowed the Jews to exercise some of that in order to keep the peace because remember they just took over a nation they don't want rebellion to come and and continue to be a problem that that the Jews might gather together and and form an insurrection so um, they there was sort of two separate domains at the time Now, if you read through the Gospels, you can recognize this, but the Jews at this time were in sort of a spiritual lull. They were very traditional, they were very religious, but their love for God himself and for people had grown cold. Just think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious teachers and leaders of the time. And if you've read through the New Testament, you see that the Pharisees were hypocrites, they did things ex- for external praise and glory. They were going to church every Sunday. They did all the right things, but yet their hearts were far from God. So this is, if you think about the Old Testament and, and sort of the ebbs and flows of Israel, loving God but then falling into sin or for other gods, but then, you know, sometimes their faith was just dead. The dry, think of the dry bones from Ezekiel. And God wanted to give a new heart and a new flesh, but right now, John is getting ready to preach a sermon to a spiritually dry, religious, traditional people. So John's role was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah, for Jesus. Uh, interesting fact, Jesus speaks of John the Baptist this way in, in Luke seven twenty-eight. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's quite the compliment coming from Jesus, the creator, right? So John's going to preach a baptism of repentance. And so I'm quickly going to go over what is baptism. I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but it's important for us to recognize that there are two types of baptism in the New Testament. There's the baptism of John, which is what we're going to read about today. And then there's the baptism that Jesus instituted during the Great Commission. So think of Matthew 28. He says, Go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So even though people got wet with water, and it was called baptism, there really is a, a, dip, a significant difference between these two. As Christians today, we practice the baptism of Jesus. There's an interesting passage in, in uh, Acts 19 where you see both of these baptisms mentioned. And I'm just going to show you what Paul says. So Paul comes upon people and says, hey, you know, like, have you been baptized? And they're like, yeah, we were baptized with the baptism of John. And he's like, oh, well, you haven't been baptized with the baptism of Jesus? And they're like, what's that? We've never heard of Holy Spirit. Actually, if you read it, it's kind of funny. So this is what John says, or this is what Paul says in the book of Acts 19. He says, John, baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John's baptism of repentance was preparing people for the coming of Jesus, whereas ours is looking back on the life, death, burial, like you go in the water, and resurrection of Jesus. So we identify with the gospel And we proclaim that Christ is our Lord. That's what baptism is now for us today. So this was a short-lived type of baptism. So let's continue in our text. And we're going to see in this next passage, verse 4, a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And Luke attributes this prophecy to John the Baptist. Here we go. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So within this prophecy, you see a bunch of imagery. You see there's paths, there's valleys low valleys, and there's high mountains and hills, and there's crooked paths, and there's rough places, these, these symbols represent the hearts of the people. Really, these symbols could represent a range of hearts for all of us today, anybody in the world. So when, when the prophecy says that, that John would prepare people for Jesus to fill every valley, that's anyone who is humbled, anyone who is low, they will be filled up. To make every mountain and hill low. That means anybody who is prideful, anybody who has exalted themselves, exalted themselves will be humbled. And then he says, to make crooked things straight, to make rough places level. The wicked will be changed. The Lord will change us. And the final goal uh, of all of this is that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this prophecy also includes Everybody. Jews and Gentiles. That means Gentile is just a non-Jew. So basically everybody, all tribes, tongues, and nations will be confronted with salvation and the opportunity for salvation in Christ. So John is preparing the way. Uh, Think of it this way. John is bulldozing a path for uh, for people's hearts so that Jesus can travel on them. The image that comes to mind for me is, you know, you're driving in, in Kentucky or, or Tennessee down south. That's for me. I'm sure there's plenty of other mountainous areas, even the cut of the hill. And you can, you can see, like, these big, you know, like, rock walls. and you're, Somebody cut through there so that you could drive, right? And, you know, whatever the grade used to be, I'm sure it's much flatter than it was. And, you know, sometimes it's straighter. If you go into Tennessee, it's like... You know, all over the place, but that's what John was doing for these people. And that's a, a lot of damage happens in that process. Really, like he's knocking, he, he's like, like plowing through the hard, prideful, mountainous hearts of the people. And so, the first point I want to make is that the gospel levels everyone. The gospel message levels everyone. If you're low. Christ will exalt you. If you're high, Christ will humble you. And we see that a lot of the people here needed to be humbled. We all have areas of resistance. Michael talked about that from chapter 2, the prophecy with Simeon. He says um, that Jesus will be opposed. Well, we have opposition in our hearts towards Jesus. These are the the fleshly desires that have taken hold. These are the rough, crooked areas that God wants to straighten out. And, And by his work, he will do that. Now, I'm going to read John's sermon. We've got three verses today on John's sermon. and We're going to focus a lot of our time on this. So pay attention to this. Obviously, this is is like the cliff notes. I'm sure he didn't preach for 30 seconds and it was done. Um, But John preaches this sermon. Here's the cliff notes of the sermon for us to read and hear. Luke 3, 7. Speaking of John. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. And thrown into the fire. That's pretty heavy. John's fired up right now, speaking of fire. He's warning them of the wrath to come. He's saying, You have fallen asleep. You've rested on your traditions. Where's your real faith? Why is John so harsh with these people? That's the question that hits me. Like why, is man, whoa, like takes a turn. Because they were a proud people. Again, these, these religious Jews, they relied on their religion, their tradition, their heritage. You know, my great, great, great grandpa was, was Abraham. They relied on external practices of religion. They were entitled. They were presumptuous. The crowds had come in order to merely practice another ritual. He knew that's what they were doing. And so he rebukes them for it. He calls them a brood of vipers. Do you know of another snake in, in the Bible that might be uh, prominent? Satan, the great serpent. They knew, they would have known for sure that he's calling them wicked and evil and arrogant. Because they only cared about external righteousness. Now we see this kind of language and this kind of tone and this kind of approach all throughout the Old and the New Testament at times. This isn't the only way that we see God's people speaking, but we see it. We see it with Jesus. We see it when Peter preaches in Acts chapter two, the way he talks to uh, the, the people who come to be baptized and by him and by his disciples. We see Paul speaking this way, Acts 17. Paul warns people uh, about the, the day that is fixed, where God will judge the world. He says, um, he says, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now, it's time. It's time to be saved. So we see a warning. Now, this kind of language is not used by Jesus, Peter, Paul, and other disciples. They're not hard on these prideful people because they don't love them, but precisely the opposite. They know that a prideful heart needs tough love. So God himself really is the best example of this, which leads to my second point. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4:6 uh, says those exact words. "God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." We see it in First Peter. It's quoted as well. It comes from the Psalms. So in, in ministry, I've adapted the phrase this way. I don't know who I got it from, but I've adapted this phrase this way. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. The law is the tutor that leads us to Christ. So God's law, God's standard of holiness and righteousness is meant to be a mirror for us so that we see what we really look like which is we're, we're all sinners in need of grace. So when we see the law, it lowers us, and it says, you need Christ, you need Christ. That's what the law does. But when somebody's already humbled, already convicted, then we give, we extend them grace. There's practical uh, implications about the way John is ministering to these people. When someone is humble and teachable, we give grace, but when they're hardened and prideful, uh, our words need to get a little sharper. Um, our, Our tone and the way that we speak to somebody needs to match the heart disposition of our hearers. And that's a hard thing to manage. You know, if my kid comes to me and says, look, Dad, I did this thing. I know it's wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I need your help. I'm like, I love you. I forgive you. Thank you for telling me. But if I say, hey, did you do this thing? And they're like, what thing? No, I didn't do the thing, and I just saw them do it. Then it's gonna be a little bit different approach. Oh, I forgive you so much for doing that thing. Like I didn't even do that thing. Their heart is hard. <laughs> They're prideful. And so it's a little bit different approach. Um, maybe drastically different. Look at so so Jesus. We can think about Jesus and his ministry throughout the Gospels. In Luke 7, there's a, a, a prostitute who comes into uh, the dinner that, that Jesus is having with Pharisees. And she starts to wash his feet with her tears and hair. And Jesus shows her nothing but gentleness and grace. And the Pharisees get annoyed and judge Jesus. And then he turns and, and rebukes them. And he forgives her sins, tells her to go sin no more. That's the way Jesus treats this, this really evil woman. But God had been working on her heart, and she had been humbled, and she's ready for grace and forgiveness. So I'm I'm going to read one passage unrelated to that that Luke 7, just so you can see a little bit of the way that Jesus talks to the the prideful, hypocritical Pharisees. Luke 11, 43 through 47. Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. "'Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, "'and people walk over them without knowing it.'" And one of the lawyers answered him, "'Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also.'" And he said, "'Woe to you, lawyers also.'" Like, oh my gosh, this is Jesus, remember. "'Woe to you, lawyers also, "'for you load people with burdens hard to bear, "'but you yourselves do not touch the burdens "'with one of your fingers.'" Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Those words are cutting. There's a time and a place for opposing the proud. God always opposes the proud. He always opposes the hypocrisy. And that's just as true within our hearts as Christians as it is of of people who are fighting against the gospel. We need to be careful, though. Like, I'm not, we need to be careful when we use sharp, sharp words and hard tones. It must, must, must be for the good of our hearers. It must be done in humility. And we must take the log out of our own eye first so that we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's or sister's eye. The third thing I want you to, to take from this, this sermon from John is this. God's wrath must be proclaimed. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He, he talks about the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Like, this is imminent. Anyone who, any tree, that's any person who does not bear good fruit. Anyone who is not walking with Christ and showing fruit from their faith. And God will be cut down and thrown into the fire. God's wrath is his intense anger and judgment. Romans 2, 5 says it this way. Again, Paul's writing, and there's a prideful people in their midst. He says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, God's wrath is central to the gospel. It's not the whole gospel, but it is a building block of the gospel. We need to grapple with it. We need to understand it. We need to be shaped by it. And we need to warn people that God is a good judge and he will judge all of those who don't know him through Christ. John Piper said this. I was listening to a podcast and he said, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. This should really shake us. The fact of God's wrath should lay us bare. It's a hard teaching. Hell is a sticking point for many people. They don't like this idea that God is a judge that God will judge them or anybody that they love. So they deny this fact. But the reality is that the fact that God is a good judge should be comforting to us. All evil in this world will be taken care of. God will make all things right. Think of a judge who, who uh, let's say there's a you know, well-known judge who's known for always letting everybody go free. <laughs> like, guilty, you're free to go. I don't think that would ever happen because they would not last. God is a perfect judge. I was really convicted when studying this passage. Like, this has been a heavy last couple weeks. Because of all the vain thoughts that fill my head and cause me to worry, all of the things that I, I seek to distract myself with became so obviously petty. Like, What? Gas prices? Like, think about what this text is saying. Like, there's a time for us to take God's word totally seriously and just be laid bare by it. I'm not saying that's every second of every day, we're just super serious all the time, but there is a time to reckon with the hard passages of Scripture. I'm going to let it up a little here by saying Romans 8.1 says this. So if you're a Christian here today, if you know the Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. But the warning of God's wrath is a tool for us to clear the way for Jesus. I think many of us are afraid to death to speak about God's wrath and the coming judgment. I know I am. There, there's plenty of times where I'm like, oh I'm skip that one. Imagine you're in a doctor's office, you're waiting for your visit, you're reading on your Bible app. Somebody notices you reading, they're one of those weird kinds of people like myself who might strike up a conversation. I'm like, oh, I see you're reading the Bible. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I am. Oh, okay. So you're talking, and they say, Well, my friend, my friend's this like this really religious person, and uh He told me that if if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm gonna go to hell. What do you say? If John the Baptist were preaching this message in today's context, I think we might be embarrassed by him. I think we might be quick to distance ourselves from his teaching. Oh, he's prideful. I don't like that guy, you know, oh he's kind of a jerk. He should be loving people and be kind and and gracious instead of judging them all the time. If John's tone bothers you in this passage, maybe it's because you're being more shaped by the culture and the social taboos than by the Word of God. I don't mean bothers you the way that it should bother you. I mean, like something's off here. Maybe he was just, you know, you make excuses. Oh, you know, that's just John the Baptist. We're not John the Baptist. You know, I don't have to say anything hard like that. Don't be so quick to dismiss hard language. God may just be using it to expose pride. Again, I'm not saying we go around yelling at each other and just like, flee from the wrath to come! You know, like that's not the, the, the constant all the time. I mean, when you read the Bible, you see this here and there. You see it fairly frequently. But that's not the only Message. It's not the only speed. But I do want us to see that there's a biblical category for this kind of language, this kind of speech, this kind of hard teaching. And I want us to grapple with this because lost people need to know that they are headed for hell. And hell is a place of suffering under God's wrath and judgment. A friend of mine recently told me that he no longer believes in hell. Uh, he's been a Christian many years. And uh, he said, you know, I, I, just, I just believe it'll be destroyed and it's not eternal. You know, God's going to, Everyone, he's what you call a universalist. And I said, well, I understand the temptation, man. But like, you can't really get that from the Bible. I mean, you really can't. And so I, I shared with him Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. And I just read this and he went, hmm. So listen to, listen to the context here. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, most likely Paul in my opinion, was writing about we, the need for maturity. And he says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance. So now he's like, he's saying these are the elementary doctrines that we need to move on from. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works or faith toward God and of instructions about washings, which is baptisms. The laying on of hands for prayer and for ordination, my note there. Um, The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So it's like you know, this is first grade, second grade, third grade. Let's move on. Eternal judgment is an elementary school material for Christians. It's one plus one. Yet, we're often afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to think about it. I think sometimes we've moved on from it. Oh, I don't want to think about that anymore. I've moved on. I'm smarter than a spiritual fifth grader, so I don't need that, you know, that kind of thing. Now, We're going to go back to our passage, and we're going to see how did these people respond. Luke 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? That's impressive. It sounds like they're open. These whole crowds, what then shall we do? And he said to them, whosoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came also to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It sort of surprises me if you read through that sermon, it's just that people are just like, Okay. I'm sorry. You know, there seems to be a disposition like, okay, what do I need to do? He said, bear fruit and keep him with repentance. He means change some actions and be consistent with that because repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read uh, a definition from the ESV study Bible. The word repentance, we throw it around a lot. Sometimes we know what it means, but sometimes it can kind of be like ethereal, like oh, repentance, you know, that's the thing. And there's a lot of misunderstanding around what this word means. And so we're oftentimes going to explain repentance and what it means. So change one's mind. That's the most foundational definition for repentance. And then it goes on. A change in a person's attitude toward God that impacts one's actions and life choices. It involves the idea of turning, that is, from one way of thinking and living to a different way. Common external signs of repentance include prayer of remorse and confession and renouncing of sin. This is in our liturgy every Sunday. We, we, we know that we are to practice repentance. It comes from a change of mind which can only be done by God. And once your mind changes, your heart changes, then the things of the world are no longer as appealing they start to taste gross. You're like, oh, I don't want that anymore. And then, you, and then Jesus becomes more satisfying. And so this is a process. We're all in this process. None of us has perfectly mastered repentance. But we need to examine ourselves. And we need to see what the Lord might be speaking to us. And so John basically applies this message to three different types of people. To the crowds, the tax collector, the soldier, Of course, again, uh, he's not saying, if you do this thing, then you're safe. He's not saying you're saved by works. He's saying that true faith, like the root of a tree, the root of an apple tree, will produce apples, not something else. So fruit comes from the type of tree. So what type of tree are you? It's a good question to ask ourselves. So, this is—it's hard for me to—I don't know how to apply all this to every single person in here, but God does. And so, the question to all of you today is: Where is God calling you to repent? Imagine that you're about to get baptized by John, the baptism of repentance, and you say to John, "What shall I do?" What would he say? Stop fearing the things of the world and fear God alone. Quit slandering your brothers and sisters and speak words that build up. Put down your phone and pay attention to your wife and kids. Put away your bitterness towards your friend and pray for them instead. Approach them. Reconcile with them. There's so many more things I could say. I have no idea. Like It's different for each one of us. But what is the one thing if you know what it is, then you know what to do. But what is the one thing that's holding you back from growth in Christ? Today's the day to handle it. Confess it to God. Confess it to some friends who care for you. And remember the, the promise that if we confess our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9. Let's continue in our text, and, and we're, uh, we're going to read the rest of this passage, and then I'll, I'll point out three things. So, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here we go again, John. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Another warning. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "'You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased.'" So the people thought that John was the Messiah, and he says, nope, (laughs) nowhere near it, not even worthy to untie his sandals. It's not me. And then we see a note about the tension that John had with with King Herod. And this is interesting. John's boldness and directness and brashness, like the, the warning type of messages that John was famous for, would get him killed eventually. So later on, he would get imprisoned and then beheaded by Herod. There's a little note in here. I won't get into the detail of it, but you can dig in at some point. But Herod had stolen his brother's wife for himself. And John said, that is evil. That is wrong. And his mouth got him in trouble and he ended up beheaded for it. And then we see the baptism of Jesus. All right, so we'll get to that. First, I want to focus on verse 18. So when you're reading through, you're reading through, you're reading through, and it says this. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. If you're with me, maybe like, what's the good news? Like, this is all pretty heavy stuff, you know? John's been pretty hardcore fire and brimstone up until now. So the good news is this. My fourth and final point is that Jesus would go on to bear the wrath of God for everyone who receives him. So this wrath that is warned of and warned of and warned of would end up being taken on by Jesus, the Son of God, for us. Now, this is pretty cool. When we look into uh, the, the gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 29, not to be confused with John the Baptist, so... Side note, there's John the Baptist, and then there's John the Apostle. Those are the two main Johns in the New Testament. So in, the, in John chapter 1, verse 29, we see a different account of John the Baptist. And this is what JTB says. I don't know why I said that. Um, trying to save a little time, but it didn't work. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the good news. He's proclaiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. But there's even more going on here. Remember earlier, I kind of mentioned offhand that John was a Levite. And if you know much at all, you know that in the Old Testament, God had required the Jews to make animal sacrifices in order to atone for their sin. So they were symbolically transferring the guilt of the people of Israel onto an animal, and the animal would die in their place. And in the Old Testament, the, again, the tribe of the Levites were the priests. They were responsible for making, preparing sacrifices on behalf of Israel. So John, when he proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God, He takes away the sin of the world, and then he baptizes Jesus. He's preparing the final sacrifice. Like, that's pretty crazy. Like, he's acting as a Levite. Jesus is being announced as the Lamb of God. The final sacrifice, then John baptizes him. That's, that, there's three things about John's, or Jesus' baptism I wanted to show you. And that's the first one. The, the symbolic nature of John baptizing Jesus. It's crazy. It's great. Secondly is that Jesus is baptized with a baptism of repentance. Why is that? He didn't sin. Jesus had no sin. Why would he do this? Why would he submit to that? Just like on the cross, Jesus is identifying with sinners and representing their repentance. He's saying, I'm a human. This is a baptism of repentance, not for my own. He's preparing himself to become the final sacrifice, and he's identifying with us and our sin. And then the third thing, and this is fantastic, is, this is the moment when Jesus is being inaugurated for his his earthly ministry. Not only is he being prepared for the sacrifice that he will become for us, but he's being prepared for his earthly ministry in the presence of the Father and the Holy Spirit. So we see the Trinity show up clearly, uh, like evidently in this text. I'm not going to solve all the mysteries of the trinity today but if you want to study the nature of god one god three persons father son holy spirit this is a good place to dig in and harmonize all the different gospel accounts of this so we end with good news listen the final sacrifice for our sins was coming and now has come Remember the axe that was laid at the root of the tree, that every tree that did not bear fruit would be cut down and thrown into the fire? Well, Jesus was axed for us. More specifically, he was hung on a cross. He bore the eternal weight of our sin on himself. This wrath that God is is warning people about through John the Baptist was taken on Jesus himself. For us, because of his great love, He suffered and, and he suffered physically and spiritually, as, as Jason mentioned, even in the, the liturgy, that he was separated from God, and in that moment God's wrath was poured out on his Son, for us. So as bad as our sin is, as bad as hell is, God's love is infinitely more good. God is enough. So Jesus died for our sins. That's good news. He raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven and he is king now over all. And that changes everything. That really, I don't want us to to get uh, apathetic about the gospel. I'll be the first to admit that happens and it's not good. But this should really press us and change us. Jesus will return to judge the world. And all who are in Christ will be held guiltless before God. All who suffer, or or, I'm sorry, all who do not know Christ will suffer for eternity. So today's the day of salvation. I want to just quickly say, if you do not know Jesus, I'm thankful that you're here. This is a hard message, but it's a true message. If you do not know Christ, if you've just been religious your whole life, or, you know, you maybe don't believe or don't know, like we love you. We want you to know that God wants to save you and give you eternal life that starts at the moment that you're forgiven of your sins. When you believe in Jesus, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus died for your sins, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So seek God. Don't miss this opportunity today. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you or or anybody who's a Christian would love to do that as well. But the good news is that God is a loving God who's saving people. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, this good news. I pray that it would shake us. Lord, the, the, the heaviness, the weightiness of your wrath, it's hard to bear sometimes. Sometimes I think it's, it's easier to not think about it, to maybe speculate on it w- ways that maybe it's not as bad or hard as it, as it seems. But the truth is, is that we desperately need you today to understand this in a way that changes us. God, let us fully receive the grace that you've offered to us. Let us be a church, a people that is marked by faith in Christ above all other things and love For people, second above all other things. Lord, we we uh, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the discernment and the boldness to warn people of the coming judgment. We can't bear we we can't bear the weight of doing that for every single person we walk to, they see or whatever. So I pray that you give us, give us discernment. Give us a heart that's broken for lost people and let us see the drastic nature, the, 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 uh, the imminent return uh, of Christ, the imminent, Lord, none of us has another breath guaranteed for us, God. So I just I pray that we would feel that and that it would shape us and that it would make us a more loving and kind and genuine people, a more joyful people, knowing that that's what you've saved us from, but yet we can, we can be motivated to proclaim the good news of the gospel to everyone around us. Lord, we're dependent on you. We can't do anything good without you, but with you, all things are possible. So we beg of you to to do this work in us, and we trust you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.